you really shouldn't take this on unless you feel like you have no choice. That, you know, if you have the option of going into dentistry um, or to become a commercial litigator and you think that you can do that, then you probably should. Because the weight of the work is so heavy. It takes such a toll on our lives and the lives of our families that it really shouldn't feel like a choice. It should feel like a calling, you know, you know, like a, like a calling in the way a priest is called, you know, not to be overly dramatic, but um, I really think that that's kind of the soul searching that needs to be done at the outset. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. Our guest in this episode is Criminal Defense Counsel Danielle Robitaille. Danielle is a trial lawyer and partner with Hennon Hutchinson LLP in Toronto. Hennon Hutchinson is widely recognized as one of the top boutique litigation firms in Canada, if not the world. Danielle's law partners include the incomparable Marie Hannon and the venerable Scott Hutchinson, litigation and appellate superstars Matthew Gourlay and Christine Mainville. Along with her associates, their firm has acted for some of the most high-profile and controversial cases in Canada. Among these cases include that of former CBC host Gianco Meshi, where Danielle acted as trial counsel alongside Marie Hannon. In addition to her court accomplishments, Danielle is a leader among the bar with wide participation in continuing education for lawyers and law students, including teaching advocacy at the University of Toronto Law School. In 2016, he was asked by President Magazine if Danielle is Canada's next legal icon. Time will tell, but if this podcast is any indicator, the future seems very clear on that prediction. It's a real pleasure to have Danielle Robitaille with us in this episode to tell us about her calling. So, Danielle, there's no question that in the past few years, um, you've made it to be one of the most well-known names in criminal law. And that just doesn't happen, and nor does it come without the right disposition for this kind of work. And we all want to understand, and I think our listeners do too, why do you think you were drawn into criminal law above all? Is there one particular event, particular person, or just a character that set you along this path? So I really had no idea what I wanted to do when I entered law school. Uh, I was one of those students who went to law school because I really didn't have any other plan. Um, and I figured that once I had my law degree, I could um, decide to teach uh, or write um, and kind of figure it out once I was done. I went to Dalhousie, which is a great uh, school that has a, a number of kind of clinic programs. And I did the criminal clinic, I guess, in my second year. And the criminal clinic at Dalhousie is basically a shadowing program. So 
you either shadow uh, a crown prosecutor or you shadow uh, someone working in the defense bar. The defense uh, uh, system in Nova Scotia is a staffed legal aid system. And so, uh, which is kind of an interesting issue from a systemic perspective to compare and contrast between both systems. But I got to shadow a great lawyer named Brad Sarson. And if I could just, you know, ask you one quick question sure. about that, because in in Ontario, you know, we work largely on a certificate system where people are allocated certificates and then by and large, they get to choose the lawyer that they want to represent them, assuming the lawyer will take them on. Um, but it seems as though you're describing a different system. And um, is it would it be something more akin to what someone might call like a public defender system? Yeah, that's right. And so that's what they have in Nova Scotia. They have a, a certificates available for conflicts. Um, and there, are, there is a small private defense bar as well in Nova Scotia, but there is a public defender system. You know, Tuesdays is intake days. You get assigned a lawyer and um, they work the case on your behalf. The way it works from a systemic perspective is that defense counsel's salaries are indexed to the crowns, so everyone gets paid the same amount. And I think, you know, it's interesting um, from the retention of women perspective is I, I bet, and I haven't looked at the numbers, but I bet the retention of women on the defense bar in Nova Scotia is better than Ontario. And in, in I definitely want to return to that because I think that's something that is is really important, particularly in Ontario and the criminal defense bar here. But just elaborating more on how you got started, it seems like the interesting cases that happen. Uh, the system you're describing, it seems as though there is more ability for you to take on uh, far more serious cases than you would um, doing this type of program here in Ontario. Yeah. So, you know, the, the lawyer that I was shadowing had a range of cases and uh, he was fairly experienced by the time I got to spend some time with him. So I got to see him do a bunch of different things. And um, I went to um, jail with him and interviewed one of his clients um, saw him in trial, assisted with a plea, that sort of thing. Are we talking about um, Brad Sarson? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it really did not take very long to just be hooked. It, right. it was just kind of an immediate thing. That's I, a problem with criminal law, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> I just knew that that, that was it. Um, and I, I think it had to do with um, the kind of – interpersonal piece, you know, that it, it, these were really people in crisis who needed help and that we were able to assist them. I really was drawn to that part of it. I was drawn to, um, the kind of theatrics of the courtroom, I think has always been something that's interesting to me. Um, and I think too, in terms of being drawn to the defense side, as opposed to the crown side, um, you know, I've always had a bit of a kind of anti-authority orientation. You know, I was always the kid in detention, um, I, you know, always kind of um, uh, bucking the system a little bit. And I I liked challenging Her Majesty. This seems to be a pretty um, strong force because um, in doing our research, um, you know, we realized that you articled initially with Castles Brock, which is a very well-known uh, Bay Street firm. And it seems like, you know, I, I also understand that you, as many people do, and graduating law school had debt and needed to deal with that. So it's very tempting for your lawyers when they first get called to have to compromise their um, passion 
and what's really driving them to survive really and it seems for you <laughs> despite that you still continued on for this uh, love of criminal law yeah sure so i had um i had the summer job the summer gig at castles brock before i did the criminal clinic and the way it works or the way it worked back then was if you uh, were offered a summer position, you were also offered articles. So by the time I figured out that I wanted to do criminal, I had already uh, accepted this articling gig at Castles. Um, so, and it was really a wonderful opportunity because I did get to work with a number of really excellent litigators um, and uh, lawyers that I'm still friends with today. So I, I really do not regret my articling experience. But I did have this amazing opportunity of being able to do a um, a portion of my articles, I think it was four months, at Eddie Greenspan's office. That was an opportunity offered to anyone who wanted to take it up at, at Castles. And so I did that, and I got to spend the final portion of my articles at Eddie's office. And how did that get you into the position you are today? Well, I was just like smitten. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't believe my life. I, I was so taken by the practice. Right, and because from a law student's point of view, it's like if you were a singer, you're singing with Beyonce. I mean, being with Eddie Greenspan is yeah, somewhere yeah. where... It's the Holy Grail. Now, Eddie was in the Conrad Black trial at the time. So he was in Chicago. I didn't get to see him very much. But um, I uh, got to hang out in his uh, offices and uh, hang out with Vanessa Christie and Juliana Greenspan. And I shared an office with Yoni Rahamim. And uh, I gained 15 pounds because <laughs> <laughs> Yoni and I would um, just eat so much fried food. Uh, and then I would come home and my husband said, like, do you work in a kitchen? Are you a lawyer or are you manning a deep fryer? So, um, that was a bit of a downside, but, um, yeah, I just, I, I loved it. And then afterwards I knew that I couldn't return to castles, even though it was financially a very stupid, uh, decision to make because I had a hundred thousand dollars of debt, um, from funding my undergraduate and, and law school education, I just knew that I had to do criminal law. So I pulled my name out of the higher back pool at Castle Sprock. That must have been pretty uh, intimidating. And I mean, what was going through your mind there? Here you are pulling your name out of what many law students are thinking this is the dream job. That's well, so stupid, actually. <laughs> like, you know, if I could... Um, go back uh, and give myself advice. It's not the advice I would give myself. It was right. really kind of a, a dumb move. And I, I didn't have any job, right? Like I pull my name out and I have no job and no prospects because Eddie's not hiring and no one knows me. It's not like I come from a, a family of lawyers and judges. I'm a first generation um, uh, lawyer in, in my family um, and I'm not even from Toronto. Uh, so it was really quite a dumb move. But I think, you know, in fairness, it really speaks to your character and your integrity to follow what it is that you wanted to do. And I'm certain that it's contributed to, you know, your successes today. And that sort of determination, you know, in reading about you seems to be exactly how you landed this job with um, Marie Hennon, uh, if not almost get charged with criminal harassment by the sounds of it in your persistence. So tell us about that and how you eventually got to work with Marie. 
Um, well, you know, you know, I think Marie has characterized it as, you know, some sign that I'm a hustler, right? So, <laughs> um, I started asking around, um, about who I should speak to about a job and everyone. So this is now 2006, 2007. Everyone is saying you need to speak to Marie because Marie is really the best. And, um, this is before, uh, many of her very famous cases, though she, she, by that time had won, um, a, a very famous murder trial. Um, and so, her reputation in the legal community was really very strong and everyone said I should go meet with her and, um, and I should talk to her about my career. And, you know, the great thing about our profession is the collegiality, um, of the bar. And you really, there's not a member of our bar that you can't call up and ask to meet with and they'll say, no, you're, you're always, it's an open door policy. It seems uh, to a fault. So I met with her and, um, and I can, I can still remember the meeting. Um, and I was really taken with her. I, I, um, thought she was super fierce and smart and she just seemed like exactly who I needed to be spending time with if I was going to be any good at this thing. Um, but she said she didn't have any, any positions open. She didn't have, uh, any jobs available. And I think what I didn't appreciate, which I now now appreciate, is the way it works is <laughs> you need to have enough work to hire someone. Um, and that to commit to pay someone a salary means that you need to have enough work to give that person so that they can be generating revenue uh, for you and the firm and, and that you're kind of not caught out. Um, so I didn't really think that part through. I figured if she likes me enough and is impressed by me enough, she'll hire me. I just kind of saw it as a, as kind of a simple equation in that way. And obviously it's not. Um, so what I did was I asked every lawyer that I work for at Eddie's office and every lawyer that I worked for, um, at castles to call her, to call Marie and just let her know that I was great. And, um, they did that. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, eternally grateful um, that, you know, people like Arthur Hamilton called Marie, um, just to kind of give her a sense of the type of work I did for him and, and the type of associate he thought I'd become. Um, and I kept calling, I kept calling and asking to speak with her and speak to her secretary. And it was about three weeks of that sort of, <laughs> uh, campaign. Um, and ultimately she decided to hire me. And it's, it's interesting you say that because, you know, in the course of uh, meeting many lawyers and, and even in this podcast, there is, uh, it seems to be a trend of, of great lawyers um, are not just given a chance, but there has to be a real persistence behind that chance. And, you know, if chances aren't there, they make them. And it sounds as though you certainly made that chance for yourself because I'm sure Marie at that time had been getting many resumes about people uh, who are fantastic, very smart, uh, potential lawyers and wanting to work for her. But you kept um, driving at that until you um, 
were able to achieve that position. And I'm curious, how much do you think your background, whether it was previous jobs or just your upbringing, how much do you think that impacted your persistence, which I'm sure carries on to this day? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I was listening to um, your interview with Michael Lacey, who um, I admire very much, and he was describing his his family background, um, and and I and I can certainly relate to his description of his family background. Um, and you know, I had by the time I'm applying for a job with Marie, I certainly worked a ton of different jobs, um, including. Um, uh, the, being the water girl at William Ashley's, which is, I've got a lot of stories, uh, from that gig. Uh, I worked at a go-kart track. I worked at the Speedo store. I also have a lot of stories about that. Um, I worked at Roots. I worked at La Cache. I worked at the athletic center at U of T. I'd been a TA, um, at Dalhousie. Um, and so, I worked at Tim Hortons in high school. Uh, so I, I knew how to work. There's no question I knew how right. to work. Um, and I had to work. I've always had to work. Uh, it was, it's actually only, uh, until recently where I can see a help wanted sign and not have the instinctive reaction <laughs> of I should put a resume in. Um, so, so yeah, I've, I've, always, uh, had to work and I've always known how to work. And I had done a lot of interviews and I did know how to hustle. You know, I see this, uh, trend and, and maybe it's a, a confirm confirmation bias on my end, but I do see a trend among great, in particular litigators, you know, uh, leaving lawyers as a group aside, but in particular litigators and even Eddie Greenspan and, you know, talking about his, uh, upbringing, um, they have very, um, they have very eclectic lives growing up in, in the sense that they're drawing experiences from all aspects and, uh, using that to persuade and to understand people, particularly before a jury. Do you feel that a lot of those skills you've learned at the Speedo store and go-kart racing have translated well into litigation itself? Yeah. So I think there are two things, you know, in terms of the trend, you know, defense lawyers, see themselves as underdogs and they see themselves as outsiders before they kind of come to the profession. I think almost as a general rule, some of that is completely delusional, right? <laughs> like, you know, that I'm no outsider. I mean, I'm walking around with a ton of privilege. Right. Um, I felt like an outsider. I felt like an underdog. I've always felt like a scrappy underdog to this day. I feel like a scrappy underdog. And some of that is totally, delusional, maybe genetic or something. I don't know. But I think you're right about that. Um, and I do think, I do think that the real world experience, the part-time jobs, um, the, the middle-class family upbringing, um, the, the friends that aren't lawyers, um, the maybe wild teenage years, all of those assist when you're trying a case. And, and I don't know if it's about, necessarily relating to the jurors so much as understanding witnesses um, and being able to uh, kind of size up the witness and analyze their motivation um, and understand their evidence. And, and I think that if you've spent your life in an ivory tower and with your nose in a book, you maybe don't get it. Right. 
It's hard to size up who's going to crash the go-kart unless you've worked at the go-kart track. Right, <laughs> right. Well, here you are now, by anyone's definition, a very accomplished lawyer, uh, one of uh, Canada, if not um, North America, if not the world's best law firms. Um, you're a mother of twins, hmm. um, a teacher, mentor, known and respected among your peers. So there's no doubt you are an inspiration to many young lawyers looking to replicate what you've done. Um, and I know you've probably had this discussion with many lawyers in your mentorship, but what advice do you give them when trying to not only set their goals, but in achieving them as you've clearly done? You know, I, I think what I say, what I've started to say recently that I, that is a bit, um, I'm a bit of a negator in this regard, um, is that you really shouldn't do it. You really shouldn't take this on unless you feel like you have no choice. That, you know, if you have the option of going into dentistry um, or to become a commercial litigator and you think that you can do that, then you probably should. Because the weight of the work is so heavy. It takes such a toll on our lives and the lives of our families, that it really shouldn't feel like a choice. It should feel like a calling, you know, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like a, like a calling in the way a priest is called, you right. know, not to be overly dramatic, but, um, I really think that that's kind of the soul searching that needs to be done at the outset. Right. Because whether you like it or not, once you're involved in a case, that moral obligation is going to weigh heavy on you and you can't you know, sort of, uh, wade into the shore at that point from, from your journey into the ocean. That's right. And, and you can't put it aside and you can't put it behind any other priority. It's always comes first. Your obligation to your client comes first above and beyond everything else. So, um, it is, it is such a, a sacrifice to make for your clients and for the administration of justice that in my view, you should only do it if you feel like it's your only option, which is how I felt, you know, right. it's, it's kind of crazy. And, um, maybe there's some psychoanalysis to be done. Uh, but that's how, that's how I felt. Um, and, and, and it is really that, uh, the calling that drives the development of the skill, which is the next step. And I want to get into that particularly, you know, how closely you, you work with um, Marie. But before we do, I, you know, you said something there that, that um, I think would really strike a chord in many and certainly in me is this inability to completely turn it off. You know, no matter what, you always have cases pending. You always have something coming up. Someone's always depending on you in a way that um, is very serious with severe consequences. So a question I ask everyone, and certainly myself at times, is how do you deal with the stress? How, you know, as Michael Lacey put it, how do you compartmentalize your life in a way that you can, um, if not survive, maybe thrive? Yeah. Well, I think, I think to some degree you either have it or you don't, that ability to, tur to turn it off, to compartmentalize. And, you know, we've seen lawyers at, at our bar who've not been able to successfully manage that. And, 
Um, and that can be the downfall of a great lawyer. Um, and so there's a certain mental toughness that I think you either have or you don't. Um, I certainly relate to Michael's point that compartmentalizing is really the, the means to survive. And I, I manage that, um, most of the time, I would say that I'm able to kind of put it aside in one part of my brain and, and read Harry Potter um, <laughs> with the other uh, Which part. Which house do you belong to? Uh, well, I'm a Gryffindor, obviously. <laughs> 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 um, but I think my... Um, uh, what is it called? The the thing that you, you, you use to expel the Dementors. What's that called? I don't know. I haven't found <laughs> mine yet. <laughs> it's like, I've got a real, like a really weird one. It's like a slug like or exorcism? something. Exorcism? <laughs> no, it's like, I can't remember. Anyway, I, we, we are loving the Harry Potter books at home. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm able to compartmentalize most of the time. Um, and I, Recently, I found um, that it's kind of necessary for me to carve out a little um, time for myself. Do you? Uh, I noticed in your um, in doing some research, you used to be a pretty active dancer, yeah. If not professionally, so almost or quasi professionally. No, very... I, was, I was delusional. Oh, Sean. okay, but dedicated <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah, totally dedicated. All right. Uh, is that something that you still do to try and escape and let your mind run in different areas from what you're doing on a day to day? Yeah, I was dancing ballet last night. Um, and, and so I try to get to class when I can. Um, and I, you know, I, I basically am a bit of a class pass addict. And so I try to hit the yoga studio or, um, or the dance studio when I have a moment. Do you find that helps? Yeah, but you know, only recently, Sean, like, you know, to be, to be real, I've not, I, I didn't think I needed that until very recently. Um, and, uh, what I've noticed is if I can squeeze in a workout, I can bank usually four or five days of good mood. So for me, it's about the endorphins. Um, and, and that's, you know, I, I, didn't really appreciate that until recently. Um, I kind of had this idea that if I was working out, it was because, um, of some kind of aesthetic goal or I, or some kind of competitive, uh, object that I mm -hmm. wanted to be the best yogi in the class, which is so stupid. Um, and so the minute I kind of realized the mental health piece, like the good mood piece is when, um, it became a lot easier to squeeze it into my schedule and it's really, really helpful, actually. I, I think it's a really important point because it's so easy to get lost into our cases and thinking, I need another hour on this factum. I need another hour prep on this case. But in doing so, you know, what you seem to be suggesting is you're actually decreasing your productivity and your attitude and your ability to effectively be at the absolute top of your game during a cross-examination, for example, which you need to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that uh, everyone knows about you is how closely you've worked with uh, Marie over the past years, you know, a true master of criminal law. And, you know, reading this, I, I um, was thinking of um, the study of, of making food in Japan. And in Japan, one has to study 
for so many years under a true master, I think the phrase is uh, iteme, before becoming able to, being able to make the rice or, and then, you know, as you progress, but the minutia of detail that's required in even being able to make the rice, let alone, you know, carving the fish and doing these sorts of things, it's only when you've reached, um, almost a level of perfection that that trust is passed on to you. But as we know, you know, true mastery of, uh, Japanese cuisine is something that is so perfect and so, amazing to eat and i wonder um is that sort of uh you know there's no doubt that marie has passed on to you all these wonderful tools but how much of that has to do with this rigorous precision and 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 what i guess a really long way of saying is what can you tell us about your uh tutelage under under marie well it was a um a pretty intense period uh where I was really in her face as much as I could be. Um, and I really never left her alone. Um, because I just wanted to learn so badly. I really just wanted to know everything that I could know. Uh, and I wanted to see exactly how she did everything. And so I would sit on her couch in her office, uh, when we were on King West and just listen to her speak to crown attorneys on the phone. Uh, I would sit and watch her speak to a client about the decision to plead guilty or to proceed to trial, to testify or not testify. I um, would just follow her around all the time. And, um, you know, I ha- there were times where I had to do independent work, but um, I just couldn't kind of get enough of watching her. And... Um, you know, I, I really learned by osmosis in that way. Um, and what she would say, I think is, um, that's how she learned from Eddie as well. Um, and we've really kind of carried on this ethic at our firm at Hen and Hutchison. There's not, um, there's not this business of throwing someone into the deep end, um, the, the process is a slower one. Um, it's a, it's a more gradual one and it's really about mentorship. Right. And there, it, there are two kind of schools of thought on this, you know, um, some people believe that, you know, you, you only learn by doing, um, and that you need to be thrown into the deep end to really learn how to, to practice properly. Um, we take a, a different view. And look, I think, I think that there are great lawyers that have come out of both schools of thought. I think to some degree, it's a magical kind of alchemy of skills and talent, um, and effort that make a great lawyer. And I think you can get great lawyers coming from either schools. Um, but this, this has been our method and, um, and I really wouldn't have it any other way. I think any way you look at it, the methods that you describe, um, what uh, seems to trend amongst them all, the thread among them, is that those lawyers who've become great, like yourself, have uh, taken every opportunity to learn, to be involved, and constantly be beside the masters of the firm, um, their their principals, to try and understand um, what is really happening. And 
is that some sort is that the type of advice you'd give to uh, an associate who's starting out their career how do they become the master yeah i, I that that's really the advice is to find a mentor Um, you know, and I appreciate that there's an articling crisis and there's a mentorship, a mentorship crisis in the profession. I get that. And, and, you know, I can't, um, I, there, you know, there's no way for me to have this conversation without acknowledging that, um, I just, just like the luckiest person to ever be called to the bar, you know, like there's just, you can't ask for better luck that she would hire me and that she would let me hang around as long as she did. And that she would then partner with Scott Hutchison, who is such an amazing lawyer and with such a different style from Marie's actually, and with a completely different um, type of practice that I would have exposure to him and that he would become my law partner. I mean, all of it is really um, very special, extremely charmed, and really, I've just kind of fallen into the best luck that anyone could. So I get it. I get like I get it that not every lawyer called tomorrow is going to be able to to sit and watch Marie Hennon make phone calls all day. Um, but you got to find that person. You've got to find the person who's willing to sit with you and chat with you and um, and help you figure out what to do. I mean, our practice is so collaborative. There's not a case in the office that not every, everyone knows about that. We're not talking about constantly judgment calls aren't being debated six ways to Sunday that we're not calling each other on Sunday night, asking about precisely how to ask a single question. Right. So, um, that's kind of really the way I was raised. Um, and I think collaboration is the best way to get the best results for clients. Um, and ultimately that's what it's about. And you, you mentioned earlier too, and this is, this is such an, um, important point for any law students or younger lawyers listening to this is the collegiality of the criminal bar. And, uh, you know, I, I suspect I know the answer, but if someone were to call you and say, you know, Danielle, can I come and watch you do a trial today? What would be your answer to that or their willingness to learn from you even? Yeah, of course. And I, I speak to students all the time and, um, and then I have them over for coffee and sometimes it takes a couple emails to get my attention. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes you need to call and speak to my assistant. Um, but, uh, well, just following in your footsteps, you have to send four or five emails. That's true. Uh, but, uh, you know, I am always happy to meet with students and, and kind of, um, and hash out difficult problems. Um, and, you know, I, I think that I listened to Michael Lacey's interview, um, where he talked about even at his stage calling, um, senior members of the bar uh, for advice on a sticky question. And I think what you'll find is that the most senior experienced learned, learned members of our bar do that all the time. They're, they're always speaking to each other, um, trying to work out a sticky issue. Right, because there's always obstacles that are going to arise, and and uh, I think it's it's really uh, amazing that you offer yourself to younger lawyers and students to be able to bounce these questions off. Because as we know, not everyone has that ability to have right one, let alone two masters in house yeah. to discuss these issues with. But you know that brings us on to another topic because the obstacles that lawyers face aren't always about. Um, 
the law itself. Uh, sometimes it relates to mental health. Uh, sometimes it relates to, um, you know, being able to um, balance that with other aspects of their life. But one thing I'd like to ask you about is um, in, you know, in 2013, the Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario released a report authored by Marlis Edworth, Breeze Davies, Jill Presser, and Indira Stewart that identified, among many other things, that, quote, women face unique challenges in the practice of criminal law. A disproportionate number of women chose to leave defense practice because of these unique and often overwhelming challenges. As Jill Presser noted in her April 2011 article in For the Defense, uh, entitled Off Track to Maternity Leave and Back Against the Odds, quote, the imbalance between men and women in the defense bar appears to be a problem with retention. More than 50% of lawyers graduating from law school are women. A recent study of gender of lawyers in Ontario found that in 2005, 56% of lawyers aged 25 to 34 were women. 46% of lawyers aged 35 to 44 were women. And 33% of lawyers aged 45 to 54 were women. And what this article, um, you know, end quote, but what this article and report makes very clear is that there are, um, obstacles that women face, particularly within the criminal defense bar, that I think um, uh, male lawyers are somewhat oblivious to. And uh, not just oblivious, but at times uh, from stories that I hear um, are, I don't know how to phrase this, but uh, are just uh, downright rude and ignorant of the issues. And, and how do you approach that uh, in your own practice? Well, I mean, first of all, I think um, it's important to acknowledge the the leadership that um, you know Jill, Brees, and Marlis and Indira um, brought to this issue. I, I really commend them uh, on commissioning the study and then the full court press um, afterwards um, in kind of publicizing the issue. And I think it was a really important first step in our profession acknowledging that there's a problem. So, um, of course we all, all knew there was a problem before we had the, the stats, but the stats are very helpful in kind of legitimizing the lived experience. Um, for me, it, it, as I get, uh, more senior, it becomes less of a relevant issue. Um, and you know, I think the biggest, the biggest kind of challenge I faced um, had to do with sexual harassment um, early in my career. And, um, you know, that tends to be less of an issue as, as I get older. Um, and, you know, the thing that bugged me about it um, more than anything was kind of my, the equities of it seemed off, right? Like it didn't seem fair that my male colleagues didn't have to deal with that as well, that they were able to kind of concentrate on the case they were able to concentrate on their clients and concentrate on the law, and they didn't also have to kind of fend off right. someone um, all at the same time, which is what many of us are doing. Um, so what advice do you give to uh, young lawyers, uh, young women lawyers who might be asking that question and dealing with these same problems because they certainly haven't gone away? They haven't, and I think it's about, you know, calling it out at the time. I think... Um, and making use of the, the resources that we have. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a difficult, um, system for defense counsel because 
we don't have um, HR departments, right? Right. We're all kind of working in small firms or as solo practitioners. And if there's someone who's harassing you, you can't go complain to your union rep uh, or the HR department. It's just not available. Um, what I found to be a, a really um, uh, useful way to manage it is to call it out at the time. And if it persists, to speak to um, a senior member of the bar who will speak to that person. So that has, that's been a way, a useful way for me to troubleshoot um, uh, problems when I was younger. Um, but I think every problem is unique. And I think um, there is no shame and no surprise that this, that this would happen to a young female lawyer. And it's worthwhile reaching out and getting support from um, other colleagues. Um, and that would be really the first step to, to kind of approach a, a, another colleague and ask for help. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, the focus of course really shouldn't be on how to, how women should deal with this problem. And the focus really should be how men should stop producing the problem. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the next question is how are male members of the bar going to learn to, uh, act appropriately around their female colleagues? Do you see any solution to that? Something that could be done? Um, that would, would change that imbalance? I think as we reach parity, that will help. I think as the leaders of our profession um, become more and more women and uh, as there are more and more female judges and leaders of the, um, the various professional organizations and at the Law Society, when we start to kind of um, gain parity in leadership positions. I think that will make a big difference in terms of the overall culture of the bar, um, which remains to this day uh, uh, an old boys club. Right. So discussing then the the bar itself and and you know um, how one succeeds in court. Uh, you teach advocacy at U of T, as I understand it. You teach young lawyers about your particular methods and how you've achieved success in application and persuasion. If you had an inscription on your desk to read as you're about to make an argument to remind you of the one key technique or rule to follow, um, what would it be? What's your golden rule of advocacy? That's a good question. My big thing recently is to be in the moment, be present in the moment. Um, the, the danger when you prepare a file within an inch of its life, which I always do, is that you lose track of what's actually happening in front of you and that you're so fixed and focused on your plan, the plan for your argument, the plan for your cross-examination, your overall um, narrative of the case, that you are not seeing what is actually happening live in vivo in court. And you, you're, the danger of, of missing it is that you um, miss something that you can potentially use to advance your, your case, or you miss something that's potentially damaging. So... The challenge, I think, is always balancing between your plan and 
the moment. Um, and that for me has always been about making sure that I'm done my preparation far enough in advance of the, the trial or the appeal that I have time to sit back and get away from it for a little bit, um, get well rested and come to court fresh. And if I can do that, then I'm usually in the moment and I can see what's happening around me. Right. Because earlier you said, you know, one of the, the big strengths you've learned from your life is the ability to size people up and, you know, being lost in your script of questions, you're sort of losing that deeper perspective and perception into people as to whether they're going to crash the go-kart. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, as I, you know, all I'm doing is trying to do this job, right? Like all that, my, my singular focus almost in life is to figure out how to do this work well and better every day. And as I gain more experience and I have more trials under my belt, I can feel the skill developing kind of incrementally. And, um, you know, when you're young, the big challenge is just listening to the witnesses answers. Like that's a challenge enough, right? You've got your script. Um, can you listen to the answer? Um, and that, that takes a while, you know, that's no joke. That takes a while. That does, that's not a natural thing. You're so nervous. You've got your plan. Can you hear the, hear the answers to the question? Um, and for me, what's starting to develop recently is I now have the bandwidth to, um, not only listen to the answers and, uh, um, adjust my cross-examination accordingly, I, I have suddenly now been able to also take in the judge, which is, which is new, Sean. There's <laughs> <laughs> a new, new breaking development. It's like the matrix thing, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I was so excited to tell Marie actually when this, this happened because, um, you know, I, I, I had had difficulty doing that. I really, because I was so focused on the witness, so trained on, on them, um, and the, the exercise of, um, adducing the evidence that I wanted to adduce that I wasn't able to also then take in the judge, which is really the point in the end of it all. And Isn't I think it? it's easy to lose sight of that as a yeah, lawyer yeah. is we're so focused on the witness and getting them to break when really the judge is looking at us and saying, either you're not accomplishing it or they're, they were broken 20 minutes ago and move on. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I feel like I maybe have my brown belt now or like, is it the green belt or something? I don't know. Like I just, I'm, I'm kind of excited. Like you've, you've caught me at a moment where I'm, I'm pretty pumped because I feel like I have, have, um, at least in this most recent case developed a, a, bit of an ability to do this as well, which I'm pretty excited about. Well, I'm going to put that at third degree black belt. I think there's... Oh, Sean. Yeah. Marie may be the ninth degree black belt that we all aspire towards, but uh, having all that running at the same time is uh, far more than a brown belt. So what about, uh, you know, coming back to what you're saying a little bit earlier too, Part of that, it seems, is you still, you know, you said, I, I still prepare a case to uh, within an inch of its life. I like that expression. Um, and does that help you, um, you know, if things go off the rail to come back as sort of your uh, touchstone to say, okay, no matter what happens, at least I've got this. And 
in addition to that, is there some sort of ritual or thing, lucky charm, relic that you have where you just can't go to court without? What what gives you comfort in the court is what I'm what I'm asking. Yeah. yeah. So preparation, I think, is the only antidote to nerves. I think there's you know, the only way to kind of walk in with some confidence is to have prepared everything. Um, and you know, for me, preparation has been the key to credibility in the courtroom. Um, and, uh, and part of it, you know, look, I still, I do feel like the scrappy underdog. And so, um, I think part of the, the over preparation is, um, is to give myself some comfort that, if called upon, I can be trusted. I've got the facts. I know the law. I know what I'm doing. And, you know, you can test me on that. and I'm going to have the answer. So, um, so that's always what's given me kind of the confidence to walk into court and, um, and, and kind of call my witnesses and call my case. Um, but rituals, I mean, I, look, my lucky charm. If I could, if I could, um, have my way, uh, I would have a, a junior student with me every time I go to court. Um, <laughs> why I, do you say that? I, the, if there's like one feeling I hate, I know you know this, Sean, is the feeling of, uh, being in court and feeling totally alone. Oh yeah. It's a very, it's hard to appreciate that feeling for people because even our clients, they look to us, don't they? They, they, that's, we're there, rock. And, you know, as you say, you're sometimes standing there alone. Yeah. Wondering, where's my rock? Yeah. And, and depending on the courtroom, depending on the day, you can feel, you know, the weight of the state bearing down on your client and you're the only one standing there, um, guarding him or her. And the, you know, and, and sometimes it's just so palpable that the crown is on one side and the judge is on the same side and even the court reporter and everyone is kind of standing on one side of the room and you're all by yourself on the other side and your poor client is there depending on you. And that kind of loneliness can eat at you. And it is always fun to have a buddy. It's yeah. all, it's so much better to have a buddy, <laughs> to have a student or an associate with you, um, who, um, you can speak to on the break and kind of hash through issues as they arise, who can tell you, um, that the judge's eyebrow arched when you asked the following question. And, and if, if I could swing it, I would have a junior with me every time. Plus, it's always nice to be able to go to lunch and talk about things. It seems like a large part of what we do on a day-to-day surrounds where we go in for lunch. Because Huge. <laughs> I, Huge. I don't know how many conversations have been had or cross-examinations won over lunch on a case. It seems as though that's where the magic happens. And, you know, these epiphanies where, like you say, you go and you can talk uh, with people, whether it's a junior or a senior lawyer, and just being able to work out these problems in your head. So I, I see, yeah, you know what, I, 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 until you said that, I didn't appreciate how important it is to have that other lawyer with you. You're yeah, right. Yeah. Cause it is lonely otherwise, isn't it? Um, now you've, you've done some amazing work, um, you know, over the years and I don't want to talk about the details of any in particular, but, um, there's a couple that I hope you wouldn't mind touching upon. One, 
is um, your involvement in uh, recent involvement in Justice Tulloch's um, police oversight review. And I need you um, to explain this a little bit to the public because I don't think many people understand what exactly the point of this was and ultimately what it achieved for um, Ontario. Sure. So uh, the government of Ontario called um, an independent, Pendant review of the police accountability system in the province. So the questions put to the reviewer were basically, is the system fair? And if not, how should it be um, transformed? So, and it was as a result of a number of shooting deaths by police of civilians, unarmed civilians, in some cases armed, in other cases unarmed. And um, victims groups had been agitating for an inquiry. So um, Kathleen Wynne appointed Justice Michael Tulloch from the Court of Appeal to lead the review, and he he was really the master of the process, structured um, a, a process whereby we conducted public consultations um, really all over and spoke to all the important stakeholders. As I understood, it appeared from what I was seeing in the media, you were traveling throughout Ontario to do these investigations. Yeah. So we were doing really kind of town hall meetings um, where members of the, the public generally could come and speak to us. And we asked them questions and we had um, kind of tete-a-tetes with regular members of, of the public. And then we met with um, specific interest groups everywhere um, we traveled. Um, and what's so, your sorry to interrupt? But what's your role then as senior counsel? That was the title of the time. And what what role do you play uh, into this? So it was really uh, about providing legal advice to Justice Tulloch as he considered his mandate and as he started to truck, structure his recommendations, um, but also to assist him in engaging with the public was a big was a big part of it, which was for me, so, such a valuable experience. Um, and I, I was joined, um, uh, with Jamie Klukach and Jody Lynn Wadalove as senior counsel to Justice Tulloch. And so, um, the three of us were able to kind of offer the, these three different perspectives. I was able to offer the defense side. Um, Jamie was able to, uh, offer the the kind of crown view, and Jody Lynn had uh, uh, her angle on the indigenous perspective. So um, the the three of us, I think, worked really well, and I think we offered Justice Tulloch um, some some value add. Um, but ultimately, what happened after really extensive uh, and and in some cases marathon public consultation was. A report um, that was issued in the spring um, with a number of recommendations for reform, really serious law reform um, in the area that um, the government has taken up and has tabled new legislation. So we're, we're going to see a new system of police accountability um, in, in the province. And I think it's going to result in um, greater transparency and accountability um, for the police, which, you know, in a democracy is kind of what you need, right? Where could someone find that report? Uh, you can find it online, a police, um, uh, I think it's policeoversight.ca. Okay. Um, but it, anyone Googling Justice Tulloch police oversight report would, would be able to find it. And um, I certainly commend it um, to anyone listening. It's um, it's a solid read. 
Now, as I understand when you're describing this, it seems like you were actually going to these town halls as well, right? Yeah. yeah. And interacting with the public yes. and answering these questions. And that's sort of a very different uh, format than in court where it's very measured. One person talks, then the next, next person talks, and the judge goes back to their chambers and thinks about it all. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I certainly wasn't there, and I've never been part of these things, but uh, I imagine it's far more dynamic. Um, but So how were you able to apply your skills as a litigator and a lawyer to uh, not only just reach out to people, but also try and, in a sense, mend the community. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, um, like everything else, it's about doing your homework. So you need to know what you're walking into before you walk in and really understand. Um, and in this case, what the wounds are, right. You know, what, what, you know, Thunder Bay is a good example. What is Thunder Bay dealing with in terms of, of police allegations of police misconduct, um, you know, trust issues between the indigenous community, um, and the police leadership so that you, you have a sense of what the key concerns are going to be, um, from the community and from the police. We were sitting down with, with, um, police leadership, um, and unions in every, in every location that we, we went to. So, um, but in, in that format, it's more about, um, drawing out engagement, right? Like, right. And about making clear to the public that you want their input. And, um, you know, we had a great, we had such a great team um, of people uh, working who have tons of experience in community engagement who were able to kind of deliver on those goals. But I think the, the most important thing um, and the reason why we were so successful is because Justice Tullock is who he is. Could you, when, when this is happening, you know, could you, you know, see in, in real time um, people's attitudes uh, change, just even if it's as, as small as an issue as just being heard? Could you see that on their faces and, and appreciation of what is at least attempted to be done? Yeah, I think, I think that the members of the public and members of the community who were interested in this issue um, were so, um, so appreciative to have Justice Tullock come to them personally. And he is such a down-to-earth person, you know, even though he's sitting in the highest court in the province um, and has, you know, um, accolades, uh, uh, you know, coming from every direction. He's really a very impressive um, person. He is so down-to-earth and is able to relate to people um, on a human level and was really able to... Um, convey that he wanted to know what their opinion was. He was interested in their view and that he would take it into consideration. And that, that's not like a showmanship political thing that that was real. And I think people, um, you know, people are smart. People know when they're being dealt with by an authentic person. And Justice Tulloch is a, a truly authentic person who cared about the issue that he was asked to review. And I think that's why we were able to get such strong community input that ultimately resulted in a report that was well received. It's interesting you say that because, you know, this, it blends so well into court because what, um, you know, I've, I've certainly seen, I may agree with me on this is that people who come before the court, whether you're on the side, uh, as a complainant or as a defendant, um, 
what they're often asking for is no more than to just be heard. And, you know, I, I've had um, clients, and perhaps you have the same experience, who have been convicted, but as long as they felt that they got a fair hearing, and I use that term literally in the sense that someone listened to them, um, they feel justice has been delivered, even if it isn't the result that they wanted to achieve. And it seems like this um, commission or... Um, uh, uh, oversight review board uh, seem to achieve that in many ways. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think, um, you know, I think that one of the things I'm most proud of being able to say to my clients who come to see me is, you know, you're going to have a fair trial. Right. You know, I'm able to say that in the first meeting. And I say, if you're, if you don't have a fair trial, we will appeal. So that touches on two issues relating to um, uh, something that's coming up in the news uh, a lot these days. Um, and that relates to um, a lot of uh, complaints of sexual assaults. And I know that you have a considerable amount of experience, and needless to say, we can't talk about the actual cases that you've done. But I'm curious about your views on that, because... Um, I think a lot of people's perception on this is that uh, as complainants or as victims coming forward, they aren't going to be heard or feel that they haven't been heard even in trying to come forward. And uh, there's one quote from um, a case uh, decided um, relatively recently um, by Justice uh, Malloy. And what she reads at paragraph 17 is, quote, Although the slogan, believe the victim, has become popularized of late, it has no place in a criminal trial. To approach a trial with the assumption that the complainant is telling the truth is the equivalent of imposing a presumption of guilt on the person accused of sexual assault and then placing a burden on him to prove his innocence. That is antithetical to the fundamental principles of justice enshrined in our Constitution and the values underlying our free and democratic society. So my question to you is, in this context, how do we reconcile these, these um, desires to be heard, to be treated fairly, as well as, you know, what complicates this further is different standards in the sense that one is of a criminal nature that Justice Malloy is describing, and another is perhaps a civil standard of, of lawsuits pending, and perhaps something that may not even meet that threshold, but as you've already described, certain harassment that takes place um, that may not amount to a legal proceeding. Do you see a way that the public needs to be more informed about this? What would you say to someone coming forward and trying to distinguish um, these subtleties among you know, what is now known as the Me Too uh, movement? Well, you know, I, I've been thinking about these issues pretty carefully for a number of years now. And um, I, I think that Justice Malloy's elegant um parsing of the question is very helpful. Um, and I do hope that it has served a bit of its purpose in terms of educating the public about the criminal standard and really the point of a criminal trial. Um, you know, but what, what, what's kind of fascinating to me and what is kind of interesting to me now is, um, is, is kind of thinking about where we are uh, at this moment in this country and in the United States. And I think the Me Too movement is a really important political movement, right? It's a really important social movement. And the, the value of the movement is to do what a lot of social movements do, which is to draw attention to a particular social issue. And 
it is, there's no question in my mind that it is a, an important social issue that deserves attention. Um, and it's obviously doing, doing that, right? We're getting a ton of attention paid to this issue. The other thing it's attempting to do is to deal with, um, what has been a historic treatment of, of women coming forward with allegations, which is an automatic disbelief of them, um, on the basis of their gender, right? And what the movement says is, um, you've disbelieved us before because we are women and you claimed we were hysterical or whatever. And, and that is not true. And the reason is not true is because let's look at the numbers, right? And Me Too says, this has happened to all of us and we can't all be lying, right? And it's about kind of unveiling what is a really systemic problem um, that permeates class, gender, race, all of it. So, um, you know, I, I think it's a very important and valuable social movement. The, the difficulty is you can't fix the world in a criminal courtroom. Right. And you, you cannot adjust the parameters of a criminal trial to achieve some goal other than what the system was designed to achieve. And the only thing the system is designed to achieve is a verdict that meets constitutional standards. And that is always almost exclusively fixed on fairness to the accused. And, and in my view, there really cannot be any bending or adjustment on that kind of single-minded focus. And if we do, we will lose our way. Now, I think what's an open question is, well, so what are we going to do now? We've unveiled this ugly, disgusting problem in our society, what's next? We know that the cr criminal courts aren't going to fix our social ills. So what do we do? And I think the conversation has now moved to um, a more productive point where women and their advocates are um, trying to figure out, well, what's next? How do we redress this? Is it a matter of um, outing perpetrators, publicizing their misdeeds? Is it a matter of dealing with it through um, kind of workplace process? Is it a matter of suing civilly? How do we address the wrongs? And I think the conversation now is kind of moving um, from stage one, which is protest, to stage two, which is what what will meet our needs. And I think it's fascinating. <laughs> uh, I really do. And, and I think, um, I think, well, we're going to get there. I think we're going to see some really interesting developments and, um, and I'm anxious to see that, but I, I do think it's a mistake to, um, think that the criminal trial is kind of your catch all. And, you know, look, it, it, it doesn't meet the needs of really very many people. I, I mean, I cannot tell you how many of my clients I, ha I have to explain to them, look, your criminal trial isn't going to be the moment you're exonerated, right? It's, you are not going to get what you think you're going to get at the end of the day, which is the judge standing up and saying, Mr. So-and-so, you are innocent and you've been maligned. And, you know, that's not what it is. Unfortunately, that's often the expectation, isn't it? It is. And, I mean, so much of our work is about um, dispelling the myths about the system 
and refocusing the attention on what it is the system is designed to achieve. And unfortunately for our clients and for some witnesses, you're never going to get the thing you want to get. Right. Because the converse too is, is true. And, you know, just as much as there's no proclamation of innocence and, and reparation in that regard for the defendant, uh, all too often we see when people are convicted, it's not as though the victims have now said, oh, good, I'm very content with this six-month sentence in jail. Uh, even that has dissatisfaction that comes with it. And what's um, always struck me as a little odd, and I'm starting to see a change. I'm not sure if you've noticed the same thing. But once a criminal um, prosecution starts and charges are laid, the uh, complainants or victims, if that's ultimately the determination, uh, are kind of left out of it all. And what I've noticed as of late, in particular as it relates to sexual assault cases, is a bit more willingness to engage in a dialogue, which I think is really important to ask the victims, what do you want out of this? What, what you know, this is not ever going to completely repair what has happened to you, but what is it that do you think would be best? And that may simply be an apology. It may simply be uh, an understanding that they pay back some time that they had to take off work or school or whatever it may be. Have you noticed uh, more of a dialogue as of late, in particular as it relates to sexual assault cases? I have, and I, I do know that um, the ministry has... Um, you know, specialized crowns dealing with these sorts of offenses. And they've um, run uh, projects where they have a senior crown running trials with a junior crown. Um, and there's a pilot project to offer legal advice, free legal advice to complainants in sexual assault matters. And so um, I have noticed a refocusing on the complainant's wishes as part of the, the process, um, certainly in terms of the on the settlement track, right? Right. Um, and I think that's a very interesting and helpful um, development. And, um, you know, I I wouldn't mind seeing it kind of in all areas. I don't think it should be limited um, simply to, to sexual assault. I mean, the, the idea that um, as a complainant in a criminal matter, you have kind of zero input and you're going to be dragged through the process kicking and screaming – um, it seems absurd to me. I, I mean, it seems like a no brainer that, um, crown attorneys would, would consult with their, their main witness and, and, and take their input, um, as part of their overall consideration on the case. It seems, you know, as of late, it even reached to a point of absurdity. I can't remember the name of the case now, but the uh, one woman was brought in and had to spend the night in custody because there was a fear she wouldn't show up to testify in a sexual assault case. Yeah. And that sort of detachment, um, the cold detachment of the court sometimes, I think really needs to be addressed. I think it's a real problem because it doesn't serve anyone well. Um, okay, so if you had the power as Chief Justice Robitaille or the Attorney General of the province um, to fix one big issue that you see, what, what would you do if you had those sort of sweeping powers? Oh man, I mean, um, this is a very little issue. Okay, Sean, <laughs> this is like, this is like a nitpicky. Uh, why are we going to court in person for set dates? Can someone explain this to That's me? That's a huge issue. It's not, why, it's like, crazy. Why are we hauling our ass 
to court and charging our clients and legal aid is paying for all these set date appearances that are completely meaningless that can be achieved via email or letter to the crown uh, is so beyond me. And, and I know that there have been systemic study after systemic study uh, looking at delay in the system. It seems to me that we would save a ton of resources if we eliminated these asinine pretrial attendances that really do nothing to advance the case. Yeah, you're so right. You know, it's like, imagine the bank in 1975, where you had to go in every day from 10 to 4, but it was closed for an hour at lunch, and you have to go in per person. Think of how far banking's come, and yet the court, nothing's changed. No, it's it's crazy. And and the fact that, you know, how how many hours of my year is spent chasing a paper information that I cannot address the matter in court until the piece of paper is in court before the justice is batshit. Right. You know, (laughs) like we're seeing digitized records in all fields, including the medical field, which, you know, if you'd asked doctors 10 years ago, would files ever be digitized? They'd tell you to, to, um, to screw off. The fact that doc, even doctors have been able to do this, um, speaks to, uh, how pressing the issue is for the justice system. And I think it's time that we have um, a fully digitized system so that none of us are kind of um, clicking around in our heels trying to find a paper information. Here, 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 here. Uh, okay, law geek question. If there was one Supreme Court of Canada case that you could change or reverse, what would it be? Okay, I'm going to screw with your question. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I... And, and this has to do with a little bit with my experience with Justice Tollock on the review. I would not change Ipelli and Gladue, but if there was some way to make those cases actually make a difference in the lives of Indigenous accused, um, then that's what I would change. That's a great answer. I think, you know, it is, it is one of the greatest tragedies of our system that the Supreme Court could get it right, you know, on this issue, but that it would make no difference yeah, practically we- on the ground and that we still have this, this unbelievable, um, irredeemable, uh, tragic issue of overrepresentation of indigenous accused in our jails and prisons is, um, it's just such a shame on all of us. If you were, um, you know, for people looking at lawyers, and particularly defense lawyers um, like yourself, like me, and even for crowns, you know, you get entrenched on one side. And if you're there for a while, it's very easy to get caught in that perspective and only see it one way. And I think part of being an effective advocate is seeing things both ways. So, my question to you is, what would you tell the public? What would you tell prosecutors? Um, how? What's something that they don't really understand about defense lawyers as a generalization that they should understand? Uh, you know, what what is the myth of defense lawyers that needs to be uh, debunked? Well, you know, I think um, I think there's a conflating of defense counsel with their client. Um, that is, um, not very helpful. And, 
I think the fundamental piece that the public doesn't understand is the necessity of defense counsel in the overall system and that the system isn't fair unless you have defense counsel present and tugging away. Um, so I, I think that I would kind of bring everyone back to their civics class and remind them of that. You know, it's interesting. Um, people uh, like myself on the left will get very exercised in a, in a wrongful conviction case, right? They'll read an article in the New York Times or in the Globe and Mail about a wrongful conviction and they get really upset and exercised and they seem to be really um, in favor of strong defense counsel in those cases. Um, but if there's a high profile case where they disagree with the verdict, um, the, the disagreement or um, the, the opposition or the protest is often directed at the role of defense counsel as being somehow responsible for um, a miscarriage of justice. So um, what the public doesn't get is the system is only fair if it's fair in every case, right? That every trial is a micro expression of the system. So that, you know, it, it doesn't just exist, right? It's, it's not like a standalone, it's not the courthouse. It's not a standalone structure that just exists and, uh, and mets out kind of fair results to anyone who comes to its doors. It requires people, actors, to do their jobs in their lanes appropriately in every case. That's how justice is done every day. And the only way justice is done in this country is because defense lawyers wake up every morning, have their coffee, come to court and defend their clients. Well, Danielle, I think you just made it into every defense lawyer's closing address for the next two years. <laughs> that was a great answer. So I want to thank you so much for participating with this. I think your insights are incomparable. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks, Sean.